Welcome to Yimby Nation, a podcast exploring U.S. housing and the roadblocks to building more equitable neighborhoods. Join Jimmy, Peter, and V as they, and special guests, offer their unique perspectives on building more diverse communities and addressing the social problems that emanate from the lack of decent, safe, and affordable housing. Our hosts have served in the fields of advocacy and nonprofit, public and private development, and are driven by their passion for community empowerment. Join the conversation and share your thoughts on social using hashtag Yimby Nation. Welcome back, Yimby Nation. Here is part two with Dr. Fred McKinney. This is a sort of a philosophical question. Just going back to something you said earlier about, at one point in time, we said half the country was ill-housed, ill-fed, and ill-closed. And then you said a third of the families were, you know, ill-housed, ill-fed, and ill-closed. And while you were talking about the minority women, the small businesses, I was just looking up some statistics, and I'm thinking, you familiar with the whole concept of laser fair, right? Hands off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing we can do with the economy itself muck it up, right? So leave it alone, right? Uh, let it take its place. I remember a Saturday morning uh, economic course at Berea that I hated, but I did remember that 50 years later. So I'm looking here and it's like at the poverty rate over the last, since 1960, it was 18% uh, in 1960, and then it's, it's down to like 7.8, and it's, it's never been lower than about, this is lowest it's been. Mm-hmm. So I know I have socialist tendencies. If I were to put myself on the scale of socialism and capitalism, I'm way up toward the other end, and I'm I'm proud of it. Right. I'm proud to be a socialist. I feel guilty sometimes about having wealth and income, but that's a different issue uh, that I have to deal with. <laughs> but it's all these programs that we have and that we do. I'm thinking maybe this is the best that we're going to get, and it's not going to get any better. And the programs that we have don't really make it better or worse that the economy and these factors you throw in a little Darwin and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. And you're poor because you I don't believe this now. I'll make sure that my that my listeners understand I don't believe this. You're poor because you're poor and you're meant to be poor and all those things go into it. And you know, philosophically speaking, is this do we have to accept a certain level of poverty yeah. and a certain level of homelessness and a certain level of unemployment? Is that something we have to just accept? That's part of a, a, a free economy. That's just it. And we can feel bad about it or we can feel good about it. But I know this is, a, I'm throwing this at you, philosophical speaking, philosophical speaking. We have to accept this. A million people being homeless. We have to accept that. And everything else we do is just on the margins. That's my philosophical question. Oh, that's a great question. And it's a question that economists have been addressing for ever since economics became a social science. And one of the ways that economists look at poverty is in two ways, absolute poverty and relative poverty. And so in society, in Americans, modern American society, yes, we have homeless people. Yes, we have poor people. And the question is, how much of that is relative poverty and how much of it is absolute poverty? I mean, There are, as we all know, there are images on late night TV of children starving 
in Syria or Afghanistan or in Africa or in Ukraine. And that's absolute poverty. You can literally die if you don't get food and water. And in the United States, yes, we have some of that. But if you look at the amount of absolute poverty, once you get beyond, say, the homeless population and those really on the margins, if you're making in Connecticut, if you're making $40,000 a year, you're poor in Connecticut. I mean, you really don't have a lot of flexibility with $40,000. But if you got a $40,000 income in Connecticut, you know, you probably have a microwave oven. You probably have a TV. You probably have a car. You probably have some clothes in your closet. You have a coat. You're able to get out of the snow and the rain. So, you know, that is still poverty, but they're not starving. They're not freezing to death. But we do have that absolute poverty in this country. And I think your question also was about the systems that generate poverty and whether it's absolute or relative. And I would say that what we have in this country is not pure capitalism. We have a mixed capitalist system with a lot of federal and state and local intervention in markets to address what Jacob Reese was seeing in New York City in 1890. I mean, to fast forward, in 1890, you could do what you wanted. <laughs> you could put up a shack and you could have 20 people living in it. There were no housing codes. You could build anywhere, you know, regardless of the environment that the house was constructed in. You know, people were dying because of the housing conditions that they were living in in America in the 19th century, in urban America in the late 19th century. The state said, and the people said, that's not the kind of society we want to have. And so, I mean, again, just in today's paper about these two landlords in New Haven who were brought to criminal housing court because their properties had been so dilapidated that they were a hazard to the people who lived in them. But they showed some pictures of them in the paper. And, you know, from the outside, they look fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, these were, again, like we said earlier, these were probably once single-family homes of upper-middle-class New Haven residents that now have four or five families living in them. But inside, once you open the door, then you see that the landlord has not taken care of them, and they're just generating income, and they don't care about the residents. And so, you know, government has played a role in American society and the American economy as a mitigating force on free enterprise, on laissez-faire economics, because laissez-faire economics is a dangerous system. It's, <laughs> you know, it doesn't care. You know, there's no sort of countervailing power to monopoly. They do what they want and they don't care about anybody else. So they might not admit to that, but to them, it's the reality. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever watched this show called Downton Abbey. <laughs> you know, it's again, it's, it's early 20th century Britain of, you know, the elites and their retinue of people who work for them, the butlers, the cooks, the valets or the valets, as they call them. And so, you know, those folks, they were happy to have those jobs because they lived in a castle. 
But, you know, that program actually kind of digs a little deeper and kind of shows you how some of those folks live outside of that castle. And so, yes, the Bible says, you know, the poor you always have with you, right? And I think that that's really a statement of relative poverty. We will always have poor people relative to rich people in this country. And I think the focus should be on eliminating absolute poverty. We don't want to see people living on the street, dying of starvation, dying of lack of medical care, their children destitute and in crisis because these things become multi-generational. And America society has many cases where people have been able to overcome tremendous challenges, but it often is with the assistance of government intervention. So we rely on government. I think that, you know, people who demonize government intervention really are, are got blinders on. They often were the beneficiaries of government intervention, but don't want to admit it. Yeah, that brings me to my final question. Given that government has always been the counterweight to capitalism and, you know, a laissez-faire capitalist system, which will never work, regardless of the trickle-down theories, Downton Abbey is a fairy tale. That family took That's care right. of right. all the people that worked for them and everyone in the village, and it was a very happy little fiefdom. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, lovely show to watch, but <laughs> that's that's not where any of us live, or probably they ever lived. In fact, it was never so tied up with a bow in that way. Given the role of government and the importance of government in a capitalist society like the United States, and the dysfunction of government that we've seen growing over the past decade in particular, the increased polarization and, you know, the fact that there's very little compromise happening any further to move policies forward. What's your view of where we're going as a country? Well, I mean, and its this, effect on social systems like this. Well, you know, we're a country in crisis. And I think the last six years, have really sort of illustrated the nature of that crisis. And it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal thing that people who really should be in support of government intervention view the government in such a negative way. But, you know, this is the crisis that we're in because I kind of view things in my analysis of American society. The criticism of government cannot be separated from the issue of race and gender in America. And we've seen that now come to the fore. I think this speaks to the whole Trump movement and the nature of his support. And, you know, the support that he has, you know, he has some, you know, as long as you cut our taxes, we're okay. You can do whatever you want to do. But they're not in love with that guy. And they would dump him in a second and they will dump him in a second. But his fervent backers are white, lower, middle class Americans who are using immigrants and black people and brown people and progressives and women as scapegoats for their, quote, lack of success in American society, their lack of mobility. So they feel that, you know, to make America great again, which is a myth in the first place, is to return or attempt to return to something that never existed, but to return to a society that you know, no matter who you were, as long as you were a white American, you're going to be better than any black person. 
You're going to be better than any Hispanic person. You're clearly going to be better than any immigrant. And so that's the divide, in my view, in American society. W.E.B. Du Bois, I think, said it best. He said the problem of American society is the color line. And he was writing that in the first decade of the 20th century. And it still is the color line. And it's the gender line as well. You know, this country has got some serious problems. I mean, the whole Roe debate, the Roe case, is creating really a divide in this country between the states that looks very much like, you know, what happened in this country in the middle of the 19th century with the Civil War. And so I think that the jury is out on, you know, how we overcome this. I tend to be optimistic that we will overcome it, but it's going to be a struggle. Just that place where we are is really unfortunate. And you've been very outspoken on um, a number of these issues. And something happened to you recently, which I just found out yesterday. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you got my, my yeah, message you know. asking you, are you okay? And yeah. <laughs> what is happening? Can you tell us? You know, sure. Okay, I'll, I'll be brief. So, you know, I write a column for the Hearst Publications, which include the New Haven Register, the Connecticut Post, the Middletown Papers, the Norwalk Hour, the Greenwich Times, and several others. And it comes out every other week. And I've been writing it for the last year and a half, almost two years. And I, you know, I would receive some positive letters and emails, calls, et cetera. But I also receive threatening letters and really ugly, nasty grabs. And, you know, most of them I kind of look at and said, don't let this stuff get you down. And I toss them, get rid of them. But back in February, I got a couple of letters after I had written a piece on racism in America. And these were threatening letters. And so I said, I'm going to keep these. And last week, I believe on Wednesday last week, there was an article in the New Haven Register in the Connecticut Post saying that some guy in Hamden had been arrested for threatening U.S. Supreme Court justices and some journalists. And so I said, hmm, that's interesting, because I had spoken to my editor at the Hearst Publications and told him about the threats that I had received. And so I called him back and says, hey, you know anything about this? I saw this article. Do you know what the deal was? And basically said, yeah, he had threatened some writers who were writing about race equity in society. So I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I actually followed up with a call to the U.S. attorney in New Haven and said, hey, I saw this article. I don't know whether the letters, I'm a journalist, among other things. I said, I'm a journalist and I got these letters. And I don't know if you want them, but I'd like to know, am I a target, a victim of this harassment, this threats? Because I have a letters that's threatening. I don't know if it's the same guy or, some, you know, there's a lot of kooky people out there. <laughs> but, you know, given the last three months in America with Buffalo and Uvalde and Highland Park, you got to take threats a lot more serious than you did in the past. Because I didn't pay any attention to them. It didn't affect my writing, my topics my approach. They said, okay, you know, that's interesting. So yesterday they agreed to send the postal inspector out to my house to take the letters. And they looked at him and said, yep, this is the guy. So because they had other letters. So he was arrested and released on bail that day. He's got a leg monitor or something, and he's supposed to be back in court and later. (laughs) So you know, this guy had also been arrested and convicted of, he had been convicted of threatening Obama. And so he spent some time in federal prison 
for these threats. And so, you know, that was a little bit of the excitement in the McKinney household this week. Much more frightening than trolls yeah. just uh, coming back. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're okay. Him. I'm yeah. kind of surprised that they let him out. You know, I was surprised they let him out also. It's like but, serious stuff because all it takes is, you know, one thing. So let's hope that they get to the bottom of it. But I think in the meantime, you have to be careful. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be careful. Jimmy, do you have one more question? Or should we ask Dr. Fred any final words or something? No, I think Dr. Fred is that's enough. Philosophical inquiry into the, into the nature of mixed economy. I'm, I'm good. Awesome. Awesome. So, Fred, then in that case, is there any topic or one last item that you would like to share with us that we don't know about? Well, you know, there was one thing I wanted to just say about going back to our original conversation about housing. And I saw a story not too long ago about redlining, and that's related to this whole issue of the housing crisis. And so, you know, history is important in mm-hmm. understanding okay. what's happening today. Okay. So these communities that are under a great deal of stress have been in stress for decades. And, you know, you talk about mixed government or mixed capitalist system. They were in stress because governments were actually acting against the interests of some of their citizens. And redlining is an example of that. And it had tremendous generational effects on the quality of housing on the income of residents, on the ability of people to generate wealth through housing, and they had disproportionate effects on black and brown communities. And it happened not just in Southern cities, it happened in Connecticut. And I would encourage your listeners, your viewers, to go and look at redlined Hartford. There are actually maps that you can see right now online about communities in Hartford that were redlined and look at those communities today. And so my parting message is history is important, government's important, and activism is important. So nobody's going to save you. You got to go out and get organized and do it together. Okay. That's true. I like that. You know, you don't want to spend time regretting what happened, but history is important to understanding today and how you move forward. Wow. So, Fred, if for our listeners that want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? They can reach me at my email address is fine. You can reach me at drfredmckinney at gmail.com. drfredmckinney at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fred McKinney. <laughs> we are really excited about this this episode because... This is a you know, a very serious episode, and I think that we touched base on a, a number of items that is definitely worth reviewing. And thank you for being so open to sharing all of this and your work that you do, which is so important in the community, both businesses and also around the world, actually. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your time. Peter, Jimmy, and myself are honored to have you with us today. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. It was terrific. I really appreciate your final words, Dr. Fred. You got to organize. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us and listening to today's episode of Yimby Nation. Continue the conversation in your communities and on social using hashtag Yimby Nation. Connect with V at www.vaceconstruction.com. 
connect with Jimmy at www.sincereconsulting.com and connect with Peter by searching Collaborative Development Consulting on LinkedIn.com. Please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue helping communities thrive. Email us at contact at yimbynation.com or visit the podcast website at www.yimbynation.com. Until next time.